Ladies Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Well, what a good Wednesday. Hump day, as they call it. I look forward to being in your company now for the next hour. We've got some really interesting discussions coming up. Kicking off with Gusti Kutzer, who is the doyen of executive search in South Africa. Gusti, I hope we're coming through loud and clear. Yes, you are. Thank you. And good evening. Good evening. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, we're going to be talking to Gusti about the um, trade and industry minister, Ibrahim Patel's decision to disclose executive remuneration. It's, it's quite a story. It's not all that it seems. Most of us sit back and think, hmm, let's know everybody's pay. Sure, excepting we live in a country where the criminals are pretty keen uh, to find out where the rich people live. And if they have got a list that is in public, in the public domain, well, you can't be seeing too much excitement about those who will be taking the jobs of running companies and growing the economy. But we'll talk to Gusty about that in a little while. Also coming up tonight, Jackie Cameron, our editor-at-large, had a fascinating interview with uh, Terence Corrigan from the Institute of Race Relations about fake news, not just fake news that we see everywhere in the on social media, but also... Uh, perpetrated by none other than Soro Ramaphosa. So there's a big story coming there. We're also going to be picking up on the whole new adjustment in the world of banking. And tonight we'll be talking to the chief executive of Better.app, which is one of the new banking challenges, Toby Van Sale, and uh, one of his new co- uh, one of his co-founders, Grant Hines, who's better known as a tech expert a gamer uh, and, well, a content creator. He's got, they've got quite a lot of things to say. I'll be finding out from them what they feel about the new Vodacom Super app. So plenty of interesting information coming up for you in the next hour. Our guest co-host tonight is Magnus Haystek, and uh, he'll be with us in just a little while as well. But let's kick off with uh, Gusti. And um, the, the, the news that came out this morning, Gusti, from Parliament that in 60 days we're going to have a change to legislation, which I'm sure, as, uh, as the, the field that you're in in executive search, is going to make things a little more difficult um, because not everybody at that end of the – not anybody really at that end of the market is thrilled about having their salaries uh, made public. Can you – you must have followed this carefully. Can you tell us what the motivation of all of uh, is is behind this? Well, firstly, I must tell you that this is not new. Uh, a, a lot of public listed companies give their remuneration of their top executives in the annual reports. So I am in favour of this, especially when it comes to parastatals and disclosing other people in terms of parliamentarians and uh, officials like uh, um, uh, public companies are already there. Why not all the others? So it is not new. I support it. The, the, the concern comes where the people know the bank accounts that is used to pay the salaries in. And with cybercrime, the danger lies in then accessing the bank accounts of these people. Secondly, also, we are protected that you don't need to give your home address, although stars, again, have got that information. So the, the danger or the, the, the problem lies in security and not uh, being a, a victim of cybercrime. Kirsty, let's just uh, revisit that for a minute. I'm well aware that directors of companies have their remuneration disclosed, but only directors. 
Now, in big corporates, for instance, you have a limited number of executive directors. Say in a, a major bank, you might have two or three uh, executive directors. But the, the question here is how far down is this going to go now? Because what uh, Patel said today in Parliament, or, or sorry, what he is proposing, uh, what he said yesterday, is that executives – and and uh, and he used some pretty strong terms about uh, the gross injustice of executive pay, that this is now going to be disclosed. So where does it begin and where does it end? I guess that's got to be the question. We know that there's already people who are running the companies or on boards of companies. That gets disclosed, no problem. But what about further yeah. down? Do you have any understanding of that? Well, no, because the the the, the question is – at what level and what remuneration grading or job grading are you using? The fair bit would be, say, uh, job grades E and higher uh, must disclose and not lower. The reason I think why this is is because of the disparity between what executives earn and what lower-level employees earn in South Africa. The gap is very wide, whereas in Europe, the gap is much smaller. So I'm thinking he is trying to bring the gap between the top executives and the lower ends together. But then again, you come to productivity, because to bring up lower-level employees' wages and the productivity doesn't increase, whereas at executive level, there is performance appraisals uh, and you have to meet certain criteria to earn your bonuses or your money. What about so the people I mean, the people you talk to? And you know, we can we all we can we can understand in principle people should be paid less, but we're dealing with two real issues here. The first issue is that those people whose salaries are now going to be disclosed are in a third world country where criminality is rife, going to be exposed more to what happens in Brazil. If you're in Brazil and you're rich, you, you're likely to have some kind of a kidnapping assault either on yourself or your family, etc. We know that from uh, from many of the examples that, that occur there. That isn't – it's a big problem in South Africa but not a disclosed problem. This might actually make it worse, the first point. The second point is people in that bracket are globally mobile. They can work anywhere in the world that they want to. And they won't have to have their private uh, information of this sort being disclosed. And the third thing is that uh, there's a, there is a disparity between the top earners and the bottom earners, but that's to do with supply and demand. So are we now going to be trying to change all of that? The question on all of these points is what are your – the people that you're going to, the, the, uh, going to try and headhunt into companies, what are they going to think about all of this? Well, firstly, I think the car policies are going to change because, as you know, in Brazil, everybody d drives around in smaller little cars. They don't uh, uh, display their wealth. So most probably the, the, the obvious things that you're a rich person is that you drive this fancy car. I think that is going to change. Secondly, yes, you are mobile, but remember the global economy is also in a recession and we find that people are holding on to their jobs and don't easily change because you know what you've got now but the grass that could be greener on the other side so i think yes it is going to be a security problem but i think people in terms of executive level this performance is also going to increase now because now they have to justify why they have to? Why they earning this money? So, uh, I I think the 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 positive is better or more than actually the negative. Gusti Kutzer, who is the doyen of executive recruitment here in South Africa, gives Ibrahim Patel the thumbs up. Magnus Haystick, who is the uh, one of the doyens of. Uh, what can we call you, Magnus? I know it was financial journalism. Now it's it's uh, it's financial advice. Uh, what do you think about all of this? You you obviously deal with a lot of people who do earn uh, significant amounts of money. Um, presumably, they're not going to be too thrilled about having their salaries splashed all over the place. 
Just a comment on the um, the Brazil situation. My, my my three kids grew up in Brazil and spent 10, 15 years of their lives there, and I visited Brazil quite often. And the, the wealthy people, the high executives, they were driving around in massive cars, bulletproof cars with uh, security uh, because kidnapping was a real problem. My kids went to the American school in Sao Paulo, and I would, we would go and pick up the kids, and there was a long line of uh, black-tinted 4x4s, sometimes one or two security guards in the car because of fear of kidnapping. So to suggest that people, on, especially with the state of South African roads, will start driving smaller cars to hide their wealth, I, I don't see that. I disagree with that. I think people will buy bigger cars because they need it in any case. I'm trying to, to understand what what Patel and the government's intention is. Yes, there are some good-sounding bites coming out of that. Yes, we all know that the income disparity is massive. But as you pointed out, Alec, you know, uh, running a listed company or an international company um, it requires very specialized skills, years of experience, and the demand for South African executives is very high, as you point out. They can work anywhere in the world, and we see them working all around in the world. And to come and try and legislate uh, a greater transparency and a narrowing of the wage gap, I think is going to be very, very problematic in many respects. Yes, idealistically, we, it sounds great, but I think um, the, those, those high earners, and there are not a lot of them in South Africa anymore. We know the reports are coming out that the high net worth individuals are shrinking by the thousands every year. And if you want another five or 10,000 to pack up and leave, try this uh, and, and putting pressure on their performance and their pay and transparency, etc. It'll cause all kinds of problems in my, in my, in my view. Just to add to that, uh, I know a number of people who've done exactly what you're talking about living here in South Africa. Uh, a, a very good friend of mine who's, who's wealthy, who I guess the criminals know is wealthy. He was hijacked one day and uh, he has now got a bulletproof car to the degree that his wife finds it very difficult to even close the door. That's how big and heavy and and uh, uh, it's, it's part of life. It's the reality of life. And my question to Ebram Patel would be, okay, so you don't really believe in the capitalist system. Well, we know because he's communist, so he doesn't believe in that. But do you think about the consequences that there might be for people who, people like yourself, Mr. Patel, who earn a couple of million rand a year, once that is available to the criminal elements, who knows where, uh, what the what the consequence of that will be? But Magnus, just just looking at a more broad perspective on executive remuneration in South Africa, if you're a really good executive, would you not then be going off and trying to do your own business, or indeed maybe not wanting to be promoted so that you uh, or onto a board as many of them <clears throat> do at the moment, so that you have to disclose all of this information? Well, that's, that's one part of it. I mean, already a lot of that information is available, but you have to dig very, very deep to go and find it. You find it in the in sense announcements and in, and, and in annual reports on page 259. Uh, you can find it, but uh, it, it takes a lot of time and it's not that transparent. You, the point about security and protection, you look at government uh, executives and, and senior politicians who are surrounded by bodyguards and blue light gangs. They don't have to worry about that. I mean, they push people off the roads every day, every night. It's happened to me. It's happened to you. So it, it, it is it's a statement of extreme arrogance that we're okay. We get well paid. We protect it. We live in protected homes, which the taxpayers paid for. Now that there's a small group of business people, executives, entrepreneurs who go out there and they make it happen. They create jobs. They create businesses. They list sometimes they are going to revolt in different ways. They will take their cash away. They are going to set up camp in Mauritius or in or in Malta or whatever, where they, wherever they welcome. We know the old saying, you know, money flows to, to towards where it is welcome. And it's just another, it's just another thing that will would chase away entrepreneurs. It will get the reputation is that's not the place to go and set up a business. And we already see it. They head to the USA like 
uh, Elon Musk and they go to and they move their listings if they can. So that that trend would accelerate fairly dramatically if this harebrained scheme is pushed through to the extreme as it seems that Patel wants it to be done. Capital is cowardly. Gusti, uh, you've heard what Magnus said. You can see the sentiment. We're coming from a, a perhaps a very anti-socialist perspective, but I would pres- uh, suggest one of more realism. Uh, are you still quite uh, supportive of this? Uh, it depends on the level that they're taking it down. And I honestly must say I disagree a bit with Magnus uh, because I think it's not that difficult to find out what people earn. Uh, so, and, and yes, we all are aware of security. The security companies must go, will do better. But I can assure you that South Africans today to move abroad is a bit more difficult than what it used to be five years ago. Uh, uh, Even top executives in America, for instance, it's difficult today. I think we've uh, unfortunately lost uh, uh, Gusti on that. But I suppose the other point is maybe it is difficult for executives today, but what about their children? Uh, the children are being educated offshore, young people faced with a reality of, well, once you do succeed, if you're ambitious, once you do go through all the many years of uh, university and get to a point where you can earn a decent salary, your anonymity goes as well. So I guess it's, it's, it's a complex issue, Magnus. It is indeed. As you said, the children, if you have a, a class reunion of the um, – uh, the CIs uh, of its 19, uh, 1990 or 2000, they're all in London, they're all in Australia, well, not all of them, but most of them, half of them have decamped. The same without medical specialists. Half of the, the, the Brits people will tell you they're all around the world. And, um, you know, uh, we, we, we deal with a lot of, lot of private individuals and we spend half our time discussing where are your kids? Now the ones in Australia, ones in London, other ones in Canada, and it's, 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 it's heartbreaking and a great deal of people's um, future income is planned around visiting their children and that will be payable in dollars or in pounds or whatever the case might be. It's, it's a reality of life. Maybe uh, we operate in a, a different environment, but uh, the CIs, the engineers, uh, the chartered accountants, they're all, there, they're all getting great jobs, uh, especially in the UK and, of course, um, in, in, in Amsterdam and, and places like Australia and New Zealand, they're all there. They're all there. Well, let's have a look now at that interview that Jackie Cameron did um, earlier in the week on fake news with Terence Corrigan and Nicholas uh, Lohman, who have put together a report for the Institute for Race Relations. Let's have a listen. news poses a threat to free societies, distorting perceptions of what is true and false, and corroding social and political interactions. So say Terence Corrigan and Nicholas Lorimer, who have produced a new report by the Institute of Race Relations entitled Fake News, A New Challenge to Human Rights. Terence Corrigan spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews, about some of the fake news narratives in South Africa including farm murders and President Cyril Ramaphosa's role in spinning the story internationally. The Institute was established in the 1920s uh, initially to envisage a non-racial society to encourage cross-racial amity. Part of our work has always been the collection of high-quality information. Much of what we know about the abuses of apartheid was uh, collected and classified by ourselves. This more so than um, agit or, or propaganda was the indictment on the realities of what was happening, but it was also important to acknowledge that there were positive changes occurring. For instance, the growth of um, of a nascent uh, middle class in the 1970s, uh, African consumer power. Facts are often messy. We have staked our reputation over nearly a century on, on making sure that the information we put out is accurate, correct, and, and, mir- and mirrors that reality. Now, fake news is not 
an inherently new concept. We trace instances of this going back to the Roman Empire, the weaponization of information to further some sort of ideological goal. What has happened over the last couple of decades has been the growth of cheap consumer digital technology. What at one stage would require a, a large organization to, uh, to put together and to, to disseminate like the uh, KGB AIDS hoax. The KGB AIDS hoax, what happened there? Um, the emergence of AIDS in the, ni- in, in the early 1980s provided the, the Soviet Union with, a, with an opportunity to drive a wedge be- between the United States and non-aligned developing countries. A report was seeded in an Indian newspaper claiming this had been a, a device engineered at a U.S. military facility in Maryland. This was the genesis of the outbreak, and of course, that comes with all sorts of implications about, you know, about genocide. It was then picked up by the East German Stasi, who assembled nominal experts to comment on it. And it has a particular uh, little, inf- little impact on South Africa in that it was picked up by an ANC intellectual who went by the name of Zala and published this thinking in, in the ANC's journals. When he died, I think it was about 1991, an obituary carried in an ANC sympathetic newspaper, The New Africa, said he had argued convincingly about the true origins of AIDS. In other words, this was obviously something that that, that, that generated the following. It's complete nonsense. I think that sort of muddled thinking may have had something to do with, with present debates later, AIDS policy. Certainly many of the kind of ideological tropes, the rapacious greed of pharmaceutical companies and stigmatizing uh, a black African sexuality and that sort of thing, there's a very strong, strong concurrence. And what about the relationship to COVID as well and this new conspiracy that it came out of a Chinese laboratory? Well, does that ring with similarities? What this report was, um, uh, was, was put together with, um, with the intention of highlighting the dangers that, that, that fake news poses to free society. Freedom always keeps in a balance that one has the right to make the wrong choice, in other words. You know, while we would be very, very reluctant to endorse silencing people, even what they're talking is nonsense, it's important to understand that there is such a thing as right and wrong and true and true and false. It's the scientific principle of a bit of information, something that can be answered with an unambiguous yes or no. Now, obviously, as your questions get bigger, these, there's a lot of gray area. So we look at three contemporary case studies. One of them is the COVID situation. The uh, idea that it's linked to, to 5G technology, that it was a bioweapon. Sometimes disentangling these stories is more difficult than, than one may expect. There has been some speculation about the possibility that, that, that the Wuhan lab was working with viruses and perhaps something escaped. Now, you know, I don't think that that is impossible. Our plea here is, is to ensure that before that becomes a basis of belief or action, the plausibility and the evidence behind it is properly assessed. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. I live in South Africa. Unfortunately, that sometimes I have to say you can't make this stuff up even though you wish you had. In your report, you also talk about the subject of farm murders. Mm. To what extent is the narrative of white farmers being murdered fake news or is it real? Farm murders have come to occupy a particular place in South Africa's discourse because for fringe elements on the, on, on the right and on the left or, you know, what you might call white and black nationalism or, you know, however you want to, um, uh, you want to pass that. They come to, they, they come to signify more than, um, more than crime. Um, so for instance, the idea that, 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 uh, this presages a genocide, the obsession of some parts of the, of, of the extreme right wing. Every time an act of this sort of violence happens, it becomes, uh, something, something to confirm that, particularly amongst people who are receptive to that. On the other side, I've dealt with the progression of journalists and activists who will swear where there is no problem. This is all just fear mongering of people we shouldn't listen to. The reason for that, I think, is also be- uh, because of a narrative that this would challenge the idea that white people cannot be victims. It, disrupts the sort of a race nationalist and an ideological narrative of its own. The reality is, of course, somewhere in between. Not all far, uh, not all farm murders um, involve white victims. About, according to the Transvaal Agricultural Union, about ten percent of victims of actually farm workers. I think that there is is adequate evidence that farmers in South Africa do face an outsized threat. Exactly what is you know what motivates it is something that remains somewhat somewhat unclear. Once again, this is something that needs to be investigated. There was a report published about twenty years ago which said crime and robbery is about I think it was about ninety two ninety three percent of um, of motivations. Labour dispute. I think at about two or three, and political or racial issues at about four. Um, the, the, those are very rough, um, rough numbers. The point is, though, that, that one often has people on the extremes, you know, trying to present this as though those uh, racial issues or those labor disputes, you know, depending on whether your orientation is pro or anti-farmer, 
as being the being the dominant reason. Uh, just a couple of months ago, the Minister of Police, um, Minister Sealy, w- made a big issue of uh, bad labor relations. And apparently there's a very abusive farmer in, in, in northern KwaZulu-Natal. And I challenged him, does he have some of the information that, he, that, that he's not releasing? Because otherwise what he's doing is reckless. This may account in certain instances for some motivation, but to try and present this as as the narrative, it's unconscionable. In fact, I can... I can... Uh, that's a fantastic interview that Jackie did with, uh, as you could hear, Terence Corrigan from the Institute for Race Relations, which has been going on for many, been around for many years, a think tank here in South Africa. Magnus, lots of ground covered there. Uh, as a former journalist... But you would be able to pick up on fake news a heck of a lot better uh, than most people, this explosion of the scourge. Uh, what uh, I suppose we need more investigation by people like Terence to find out where the truth truly lies. You know, throughout my career as a journalist and yourself, Alec, you will know if you sit back and think about it, you know, the truth is that he's got many, many shades of truth depending on who says what, in what context, and what group do you belong to. And the idea that we have an independent and press just to report, I mean, those days are long gone. Um, straightforward reporting has almost disappeared. Almost every second article you read, either in a newspaper or on a website, does have some kind of narrative attached to it and you can see it. And you have to, as a reader, uh, uh, you should interpret it on that basis. Yes, we've had examples of fake news. We know about the SARS issues that deliberately you've got a, a group of media to punt a certain line and, and the more you repeated the line, the more it was ex- accepted by, by the, the greater public out there. I think if you're discerning and a critical uh, reader or consumer of news, you tend to, you've got your own positions, but you also have to understand uh, that, that uh, unbiased or objective news is almost uh, uh, impossible to find today. Everything has an angle. It is sad, isn't it, uh, that the uh, journalist stands for journal, which stands for both sides of a story. A journal has a debit and a credit. Uh, but it, it now appears to be very much you're either a credit or a debit, depending on what the story is. And that's not, uh, that's, that's not treating your audience as intelligent lay people. Uh, it's treating your audience as fools that you need to inform. That's quite correct. And, and sometimes if you only rely on one source of information, that can be very, very dangerous. And it can sway emotions, especially if you deal with issues like, let's say, farm murders or interracial uh, attacks. Uh, either way, it depends who gets the story out first and who says what first. And that's the narrative that people run after the narrative without checking that it was true or not. And there are so many examples of, of, of in the recent past, which is very, very sad and very dangerous. We see it in Petra Tiff. We see it in, 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 in all over in South Africa. Um, and it's, it's highly politicized. And certain political parties uh, use and abuse this to their advantage. And it creates enormous damage uh, amongst ordinary people. Well, I'm sure you're going to find lots of kindred spirits at the Biz News Conference, uh, which we're having at the end of August and the beginning of September. Uh, where you are one of the keynote speakers. We heard today from uh, the Drakensberg uh, Sports Resort, where the conference is held, that we can go up to 250. That's the official number now for conferences. So we can start marketing the conference again because we got to 100. And uh, you, you, you're a bit concerned of uh, suggesting to people that they come along to the conference and then later you have to go back and say no. So it's it's going to be a, an interesting discussion. And I have no doubt uh, that uh, you will be able to uh, swap stories with Nick Hudson, who's been on the wrong side of the whole fake news issue he maintains. And, of course, other people say that he is a fake news purveyor. So I guess it depends nowadays on what horse you're backing. Oh, well, Nick can catch your eye down to the Drakensberg in my bulletproof car. It should be, it should, it should be delivered by then. <laughs> Magnus Haystick, our guest co-host tonight. Well, it's the top of the hour. Uh, It's time to catch up on the news of the day. Let's start off with our editor at large, Jackie Cameron, with the Flash Briefing.
The Democratic Alliance says it will lay criminal charges against Joburg Mayor Jeff Makubo and IT company EOH for alleged corruption. This comes after evidence presented at the Zondo Commission revealed that EOH paid millions to ANC politicians in donations. Testifying at the Commission last year, EOH CEO Stephen Van Collar said an investigation instigated by him into corruption uncovered both undisguised and disguised donations to the ANC. Van Collar revealed that irregular payments at EOH stood at about 865 million rand. South Africa's inflation rate rose to 4.4% in April. This is above expectations, with the increase driven by food and fuel prices. Stand-up chief economist Kevin Nings says his team still expects SA inflation to remain well inside the inflation target for the foreseeable future, averaging around 4.3% for 2021 and 4.5% in 2022. This should allow the Reserve Bank to keep interest rates unchanged for an extended period, says Lings. South African medical aides are in the firing line amid calls for all reserves and assets to be handed over to the government. That's according to Business Tech. It quotes Health Professions Council President Professor Simon Nemutandani, telling Parliament this week that current reserves of medical schemes and all other assets under their control should be transferred to the National Health Insurance System. Medical scheme reserves in South Africa are estimated to be more than 90 billion rand. Minister of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development, Toko Didiza, has declared outbreaks of locusts in the Free State, Northern Cape and Western Cape. Dr. Gerard Verduan, Operations Manager at CropLife South Africa, has warned that the recent huge outbreaks of brown locusts in Namibia, Botswana and South Africa could cause a humanitarian crisis as the locusts work through crops and grazing lands. And that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. Okay, well, it's time to bring in our colleague Nadia Swart with today's market report. Bradrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. The JC All Share Index was down by 2% today at 65,800. The Stell was up by 6% to 159 Rand per share. Angler Gold was up by 4% to 370 Rand per share. Impala Platinum was down by 9% to 238 Rand per share. And Sapi was down by 6% to 41 Rand per share. In the currency markets, the Rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 Rand 06 to the dollar. 19 rand 88 to the pound and 17 rand 17 to the euro. Gold is up at $1,883 an ounce. Brent crude is down to $66 a barrel and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 520,000 rand a Bitcoin. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, well, Magnus, uh, Nadia went through those numbers pretty quickly, but I want to just pause on a few of them because when you get 8% declines in share prices, those are very significant uh, impact. And we saw Impala and Karoo down by 8% today, uh, Anglo down by 5.75%, Telcom after a big surge yesterday down by 5%. But the best of all is Bitcoin. It was sitting a month ago at nine, over 900,000 Rand a Bitcoin. Last week it was 700,000 rand. Today it's 500,000 rand. My goodness, if you've been on margin or uh, taking a punt on Bitcoin, you're going to have to change your address and not in a nice way. I think the sell-off on the Bitcoin is actually affecting world markets. I mean, like the tail wagging the dog. I mean, since Elon Musk started making a couple of comments about Dogecoin or or Bitcoin, and I mean, the market is just, uh, I mean, something like $50 billion has just evaporated. And that's kind of affected the sentiment and spilled over into the other sectors. But the platinum sector, of course, has, has had a tremendous run. And, you know, from, from, from many years of experience, when the commodity cycle runs, it's fantastic. But when it stops running, it's, it's like that roadrunner running over the cliff. It just goes down five, six, seven percent, and and I'm not saying it's the start of a bit of a correction. 
in the commodity stocks, these things tend to be overblown. When you see chief executives talking about super cycles that can last for three to five years, that's normally the, one of the first signs, not the only one. It's when they start announcing major CapEx projects and you know you're close to the end of a, a commodity cycle. Now, this cycle can go on another uh, year, two years even, but at some point, there's no saying the cure to high prices is high prices. Since the high price, these other suppliers come in, the alternative suppliers, other u- people use less because it is so expensive, like uh, wood and timber in the U.S. market, which has just gone through the roof. So obviously, guys are going to use less wood. They're going to cut back and use some plastic or asbestos or something else. But, um, yes, these were big, big moves in the market, and, and uh, South African market also took a huge tumble because if you look at the top 40 shares this, so far this year, out of the top ten, I think five or six are platinum shares in terms of of of, of increases. The rest is Glencore, Sasol, MTN, and mostly platinum and and and, and commodity stocks. So there, there's a bit of bloodletting on the floor. Yeah, indeed there is. Uh, 2% down the market as a whole today. Those are big numbers. And in the United States right now, uh, apart from Bitcoin, which is just falling like a blooming stone at the moment, uh, the markets there are also under pressure uh, with the Dow and uh, the S&P 500 down about 1%, the NASDAQ down about three quarters of 1% as well. We've never spoken, you and I, about Bitcoin uh, what is your reading of it? Are you in the camp that says people buy it so they can sell it to the greater fool? In other words, uh, find somebody else. You can take it off their hands for more money. Or are you of the view that it, it is an investment? You know, I've spent a great deal of time. I've actually sat down not long ago and read the, uh, I think it's a 22-page document by the, the Japanese guy, or the, the guy who uses the pseudonym, and try to understand it. I actually said, I want to understand Bitcoin. And I gave up. I could not understand it. Maybe I'm still a rookie in the financial world. And just yesterday, I had a very, very long conversation with a fund manager who phoned me and said, what is your view on Bitcoin? And I was unashamedly, I said to him, I don't understand it fully. I don't see the economic merit. I don't see it as a currency. I don't see it as a means of exchange. My conclusion is... It's uh, the greater fool theory at play at the moment. Yes, the technology is there. The Bitcoin technology, you can invest in it, and people do it. You find it in your fourth industrial revolution funds. I can't get my head around the Bitcoin as an investment at this point in time. And I know I'm going to get hundreds of uh, hate emails in the next or Twitters. <laughs> That's my view. I cannot go and, 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 and promote a product Tongue in cheek, I said to someone today, I don't want to be the first financial advisor who stands in front of a judge when the judge says to me, explain Bitcoin to me in simple English, and I must tell him, I can't do it, my Lord. I don't want to be that person. And for that reason, I don't recommend it, and I don't invest in it. I I was at a conference in London uh, in 2018, and this was a a conference done by Offshore Alert, who are really focused on on the crooks of the world, really. But there was also, uh, in, in one of the discussions, uh, the, they had the head of the IRS, Internal Revenue Services Investigations Unit. He's got, imagine that, Magnus. This is the American version of SARS. He's got 20,000 people who work for him. And they go around yeah. in the United States, 20,000 people who go and catch the, the, the tax cheats. And his equivalent at HMRC, which is the, uh, the investigations head in the UK. Yeah. And both of them maintained completely that about 90% of the utility of Bitcoin, of the trade in Bitcoin, is through the underworld. And it made yes. a lot of sense to me because if you are uh, trading in, in uh, things like illicit cigarettes, prostitution, uh, drugs, you're getting cash for it. And how do you convert the cash in a way that nobody knows that it's you, uh, or that it can't be traced back. Well, if you've got an untraceable product called Bitcoin that you can send anywhere in the world, it's like a whole new opportunity for you. So these two guys were saying that they are firmly of the opinion that they will convince at some point in time the politicians that they'll have to bring in the regulations which will make Bitcoin 
a utility, but one that can be traced. And when that happens, if you get 90% of your demand uh, drying up overnight, watch out. At the moment, we, this is all driven, as you said earlier, by Elon Musk, who two weeks ago called Dogecoin a hustle. Suddenly, uh, all the fans of Dogecoin who'd taken it from nowhere to a $100 billion valuation uh, started running away, and we've seen what's happened there. But now it's, it's come through with Bitcoin, where Elon Musk said, well, uh, because it uses as much uh, electricity as Sweden in producing Bitcoin, uh, they, he's, he's no longer in favor of it to the degree that he was in the past. And look at it now, from 900,000 to 500,000 in less than a month. Wow, that's a volatility. There was a report yesterday, just uh, shortly and briefly, Eric, uh, in the Daily Telegraph, where one or two people tried to pay for their property purchases with Bitcoin, and the lawyers and the solicitors said, no, we cannot accept it. So they stopped the transfer of those properties. And suddenly somebody woke up and says, listen, I can't do much with this stuff. And then secondly, also yesterday or the day before, reports coming from China that the government there has stepped up and said, guys, this is getting overhand. We're going to step in and control it. We want to tax it. And you better report it to the Chinese SARS. Uh, and, and suddenly, I mean, as you say, boom, uh, the, all the demand had disappeared and quickly how it drops. I think it can drop even further as these things play out. And once it's settled down, it's going to be at a much lower level. And those projections of a million dollars in three years for Bitcoin, absolute rubbish. We're going to look back in time and say, amazing what people said a Bitcoin could be worth one day. Well, Magnus, somebody who should know quite a bit about this is Tobi Van Sale. Uh, he's the founder of Better. Uh, Tobi, lovely to have you on the program tonight with your co-founder, Grant Hines. Uh, it, it is, uh, we, we've spoken about Better uh, before when you were going through your, uh, privately that is, uh, through your funding processes. Uh, and it looks like you're starting to get a lot of traction. We, we saw, before we talk about Better itself, the, we saw yesterday that Vodacom is now moving quite aggressively into the app banking field with its super app, as it calls it. Is there, uh, when you see these big guys coming into your space or into the fintech space, does it excite you uh, that the market is broadening or does it uh, concern you because you might have the giants coming to want to squash you before you aren't really uh, getting going yet? Yeah, um, can you hear me? Perfectly. Uh, hi, good evening, Alec. Nice, nice to be on the show, and thanks for inviting us. So we get excited because uh, finally, you know, fintech is giving consumers more choice. And if you look back in the last 20 years, we didn't have much until Time Bank and Discovery kind of came in. But the thing about, you know, traditional banking is is that it's a traditional business model. You know, it's and what fintech does is it really tries to do what Bitcoin and the blockchain does is decentralize and really democratize it. You know, you got to pick your lane where you want to play in. And I think uh, Vodacom is a powerful brand and they've got a lot of money behind them, but the super app concept, uh, the the super app content, um, concept, you know, works well for large populations where you have a lot of attrition on the product itself. Uh, my biggest thing, if I have to think about it, is you know, Vodacom, much like any other mobile network provider, we really can't trust them, you know, like to the degree you know that we can trust let's say financial institutions. I mean, our data expires, our data disappears. You know, we've enslaved into very expensive contracts for a lot of time. We can't get out of it. Would I trust a mobile network operator with my money? Personally, I won't. Grant Hines is, uh, is well known in the gaming world. Uh, my late son was, a, was an avid gamer, Grant, so I know quite a bit about Unite Owls. Uh, but <laughs> how did you get involved in Better.app? Well, actually, it, it was a long time coming. Um, I've been involved in the gaming industry for the last 12 years. And uh, I had just uh, come back from doing some work with some successful YouTubers for a, uh, a year abroad in the UK and moved back to South Africa. And Toby and I started talking a couple of years ago about what better is and what it, what it dreams to be. And I got really excited because abroad we had Revolut and Monzo. And Monzo was one of my favorite experiences about being abroad. And I just like 
wax lyrical, showed him my card because I still had my card on my wallet. I was like, this, it was such a great frictionless experience that I, I, it just didn't exist back at home. And I was like, this is, it's wild that you're talking to me because I, I, I mean, I nerded out. Like I was on a, I was on one of the trains and there was a developer obviously on deadline or something with a Monzo hoodie on the floor of the train with his laptop. And I was like, do I go speak to him? <laughs> Cause like, I really like what he's doing. <laughs> You know, uh, anyway, I, I trust not to. He looked like he was busy. But um. here is Monza here because I was trying to open a Revolut account uh, last week no. and I was told that you, you're on the waiting lists and we want to come to South Africa, but you number 2,500. Uh, pass on invitations to others and then you'll come up, you'll get go down the list a little bit closer. What is the, the status with Revolut and, and Monza? Um, as far as I know, well, they're not here at the moment. And as far as I know, it's going to be a long time before they get here. Twerby has done a lot of, uh, of the groundwork with his team to bring better here. It's been a long time coming. This, for, As you say, you've been speaking to him. This doesn't come out of nowhere. This is a project that's four and a half years in the making. And uh, there's some really exciting things just like on the verge of, of this moment, which is also really cool. Um, and gaming is just one of those markets. Why I'm involved is just one of those markets where we have 11 million gamers in the country. A lot of the services that we use are kind of on the fringe. We use all these like digital services. We love spending money online. We represent Gen Zs and millennials. And uh, there's nothing that really caters to us. There's no products in banking that work for us. It's all this archaic infrastructure, the way you... Um, do your KYC is just it's 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 headache inducing that nothing was thought through. One of the most mind blowing things was having to do my tax and realizing that I couldn't search more than twelve months of my of my bank statements uh, on my on the app, and then having to go into a physical bank and getting that printed and then them charging me for it. But I can search my Gmail. <laughs> like it's 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 wild. It's it's like and and then they try to tell me how databases work, and it's like listen. Like I grew up with databases. I know how databases work. It's text. You shouldn't charge me for text, please. Like, um, so there was, and Monzo had solved a lot of those problems abroad and it was just, it was great. Like, yeah, it was, it was great. I never had to walk into a physical space and had like a teller that was right there for me 24 seven. I had an HSBC, HSBC, HSBC account at the same time as I had my Monzo account, had my wallet stolen. Both of my cards went missing. HSBC took two weeks to fix my card with voice activated phone lines out of call. I was on the phone for like two hours, like trying to validate my voice. Monzo in the app, I just froze the card. The, the Uber driver, which I lost the card in, called me and was like, yo, I got your card. I brought it back. I unfroze it in the app. Boom, boom. I had my card working and, and I didn't have to speak to another human being and it was all done from my phone. It was just like, why, why is banking so backwards? Sorry, I'm getting, I get really excited about this. The thing, like, like touching on what Grant is also saying when we talk about not really catering, I think, you know, the world has changed dramatically, you know, and, and COVID has accelerated that. Uh, right now, you know, banking and financial services is very much designed for a linear world. We all grew up around, you know, dinner table where mom and dad says, you know, get good grades, go to university, get that job, and anticipating, you know, we're going to be working for 65 years you know, um, at the same job and with the internet and the power of creativity, mobile technologies, and probably also a reason why Apple is, you know, so cash rich is because they unleash people's creativity. And we're now in the creative economy, we have multiple jobs. We start making money on the internet when we're 13 years of age, we're streaming how we build Lego or we teach other people how to play gigs or play games. And, you know, what that does is it really sits on a path for exponential uh, opportunities. There's no linear world. Linear means that, you know, banks can predict whether I'm going to be a good payer or not based on my degree. They still judge me on my background, you know, judge me on my income, et cetera, not on my potential. And Generation Z is, is going to be a completely different uh, workforce. They're going to have multiple income streams. They're not going to do the same gig for, you know, the same amount of time. Uh, maybe they start off being a gamer as a catalyst, but they become an investor or they become an entrepreneur. And, you know, life changes all the time in the digital economy. So the thing that we're building is for the future of work, we're building alternative data and credit scoring capabilities. We are building something that empowers people with multiple incomes to be financially empowered in the first place, not really to be in debt. 
our first job is to help people make money, protect money, and grow wealth as opposed to earn a salary, get in debt, and never be able to retire. I mean, Magnus, you, you were um, talking about an interesting thing. You know, we went to, to the campuses. We did bottoms-up work. And the reason why it's so exciting for all of the fans that we have right now is because we gave the youth a voice, and I think nobody did. And they can advertise these traditional incumbent big institutions that they do, but they don't. You know, we ourselves as a team, we're on campus at universities and we ask people like, you know, if banking, um, if you had the power to change this or any of your future of finance, what does that look like? And it's incredible the ideas that came from young people. You know, some people never had a bank account in their life. They were underprivileged. First time they got into university or varsity, uh, Nesfas, uh, you know, helped them to get in there. Never had a bank account. First time had a bank account and absolutely just felt like, hey, this system is top down, you know, I get treated differently, um, you know, there's nothing that speaks to my culture, speaks to the way that I, that I see the world of the future. So better is really, you know, co-created by our community and by our fans and our people because we listen to what, what the youth has to say. And, you know, very soon we'll deliver that and we'll keep on, you know, this collaborative movement. Magnus, from your perspective, if, if, uh, Options like better start catching on here in South Africa. We've seen how much Capitec has changed or transformed the banking sector. Uh, this has the potential to be yet another catalyst, one would think. Indeed, if you look at exponential companies like Capitec and then uh, more recently Easy Equities as an example, and I looked at some of their stats Young people are just doing it themselves and they're investing globally and fractional investing. And, and, you know, uh, established businesses must, must take very careful uh, note of what's happening at the speed how their business can be um, disintermediated within a couple of years if they don't change their business plans. I mean, at my business, I'm extremely concerned about it, forever looking at ways how do we get to the youth. And we're not. We're not finding the evidence. Maybe I must have a look at your your app a little bit better, but uh, we're not getting the second generation wealth that we would like to. And that's a big concern to me is when the older, when their parents start dying, where's that money going to go to? It's not going to be done on the same way as it was done in the past. Uh, We need a new business model for this generation D that you call, is that what you said? Generation D. Z. 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 Sorry, I got that. Yeah, I know about them. I know I've heard about them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a house. I've got a house full of them. But anyway, um, <laughs> do they have better uh, accounts though? That's the important thing. Can they? Can they? Toby? Can they? Can Magnus's uh, house full of of Generation Zs open accounts with you yet? Yeah, yeah, so Magnus, um, you just spot on, right? Um, there is nothing that really caters to the youth, you know, and I, I can tell you why, because it has how there's a huge conflict of interest in how the financial services uh, industry is incentivized. You know, they only help people with financial means and they don't help people with none. If you take, take traditional financial services advisors, you know, you're now on, a, I think, a fee structure, but before that it was all commission driven. And, yeah. you know, there's a conflict of interest in how you potentially advise a client. Yes, commission was regulated by, you know, the FSB, which is now the FSPA and so forth. But there's a conflict of interest. I'm not going as a financial advisor, going to go and help somebody open up a 50 rand savings uh, unit trust a month because there's no money in it for me for the time that I have to spend and the effort. Plus, you know, all the compliance and overheads of doing financial needs analysis and paperwork and all that stuff, right? It's too expensive because it's okay. What digital has done is it's, it's legal and compliant built into the technology and with a fraction of the cost, I mean, not even cents, like micro millicents, we can issue investment, help people to save money with simply tapping their phones on a, on a point of sale uh, with no financial advice uh, needed. So, but financial advice is still needed in the sense of long-term planning. You know, taxation is there, estate planning is there, retirement is there, but if Gen Z I think they're going to, they think they're going to live forever. So even speaking to them about, you know, preserving wealth for the future, it it doesn't work. But here's another interesting fact, right? 
and maybe you can help us understand this. This is what we get from campus, you know, and online and our, and our community is like, you know, when we started asking them what you think is broken with the financial services system, uh, they simply said, well, you know, banks are making an enormous amount of money from people that don't have any. Just look at the monthly debit orders being bounced. If you take a student who gets 2,000 to 4,000 rand a month so he's back and he's got his gym membership, um, you know, that bounced, that's 150 bucks. You know, that's three debit orders bounces you could have paid for the gym membership. That's almost 5% from the money he earns is taken from banks because either mom and dad's funds arrived late or he didn't have any. Toby, just, yeah. just to, I'd like yeah. to bring Grant in here because one of the points, I watched your video, Grant, uh, on why you got involved with Better. And one of the issues you made there is something that many businesses, new businesses like ours, are, are very keen to hear more about, and that is the transaction cost. Uh, you've just mentioned it now, to be 150 rand you get charged if a debit order bounces. But what about if you want to buy fractionally, uh, but you are charged, say you want to buy something worth 25 rand, but you charge 150 to actually do that transaction. Uh, was there anything in better from your side, Grant, that, that is going to overcome this obstacle? Well, we're still busy building a lot of the products, but one of the things that Toby has done with better is that everything is built from the ground up. So there's no like old infrastructure that we're leveraging. And that's really important because a lot of that old infrastructure is where the fees are embedded. So by investing all this time and energy uh, at this mm-hmm. at this stage of the project, a lot of that infrastructure has been built, which is great. It's lean and it's got high scalability. And there's a lot of cool tools that we can uh, action with this technology. But the tool I think you're specifically referring to right now is PayPal, uh, the, the alternative that we're kind of working on. We're working on a way that we pay in the gig economy, how we make money. Say I live stream. So can I, can I show you something fancy? Well, so this is not this too is, many people can see streaming. this. We we actually got uh, thousands of listeners, audio listeners. listeners. Oh no! Okay, well, so you can you can you, you for those of you that are that are watching this, you can see it. But if you if you can't, I've got this huge streaming setup. This desk is where I make most of my money, and a lot of live streamers um, who play video games on Twitch or on YouTube, a lot of our income is generated from people that are literally donating Patreons into our craft. They're artists, they're musicians that are producing these products for people at small scales and making money. This is what, what Twibby is referring to in the gig economy. I provide a service by playing games and hanging out with my community and uh, putting on a production it's a the new form of broadcast and I get paid either through subscriptions or donations and the donations are usually handled through PayPal. No one's really challenging those systems. So we pay huge amounts of money on top of, on top of the donations and that cut disappears from us. So I raised money for the SBCA once through their PayPal to raise money for a, ke- a kennel. It's like 10 grand to raise it for a kennel. And the fees on PayPal ended up being close to a thousand rand. So they couldn't eventually build that kennel because of these fee structures. Yeah. Why are they taking so much money away from this new gig economy? So we need to dr- build avenues of financial generation. But can, can better do that? The, that? the question is, are you going to be able to do that, Toby? Are you going to be able to do that? exactly what we're doing. Well, uh, just to, why I like Revolut or want to play with Revolut, we have partners, the Wall us. Street Journal in, in New York. We pay them every month. And I kid you not that forex transfer costs us two thousand rand. I was just I was just going to say, Alex, the forex market is where the disruption must come. We experience it daily when we send money abroad via the banking system, and it is one of the biggest profit centers for the local banks who they licensed by the Reserve Bank, so there's a monopoly, they control the currency market. And the margins are immense well, it's, to send it, money abroad. And if you want to guys find an avenue to send money abroad cheaper, there's your gap. Well, there you got. So you got Forex market, you got PayPal, you got a, a, a huge world just waiting for you with Generation Z's plus, 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 all the other generations. Maybe this, I don't know what generation we would be called, but maybe it's a rude word. So perhaps we should just leave it there. <laughs> but thanks, Grant and Toby. It's been great having you on the show tonight. Uh, maybe opening up a little bit of a window to people who aren't quite aware of the way that the world is going 
And uh, these things, a, a, a friend of mine who works for a bank, Magnus, said to me, yes, we know that we're dinosaurs, but actually we, it, it's, like, it's like what the dinosaurs must have done. They were sitting there eating grass, and they looked up, and they saw this meteor that was hurtling towards them, and they knew there wasn't a heck of a lot that they could do about it, so they went back and carried on eating grass. And in many ways, uh, uh, there are exceptions in the market. We've seen the, the highly innovative uh, banks like Capitec and First Rand, but phew, there are a lot that aren't really taking that meteor seriously. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I mean, our, our opportunity is just, you know, is to create a new culture of money. And we are very happy that we are unfortunate that we're, we're able to do that. It's about time and timing. And, you know, we, we believe that the youth deserves better and we're going to solve that problem for South and the rest of Africa. Thank you for having us on the show. It's such a pleasure, Toby and Grant, and we'll be following your story uh, in, um, in, in, on this program and elsewhere via Biz News as well. Well, Magnus, uh, good having you on the show as always. Thank you for joining us wherever you might be on the planet. And we look forward to being back in your company again tomorrow at 5.30. Until then, from the team here at Biz News, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.